Father, once again, we are so grateful to be here. Father, as we think about what's going on in the world around us, what a, what a privilege and a blessing it always is to be able to gather corporately and to worship you in singing of praises and the hearing of your word, hearing your word read, praying your word, fellowshipping with one another and speaking the truth and love to one another. What a privilege that we have as Christians living here in America to worship you and to have fellowship with one another as a church. Pray that even now, Father, as we open up your word, that we may remember that when your word is opened, you speak. Pray that we would have soft and tender hearts to your holy scripture, that we might be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Yea, verily, we are in Titus chapter 2 now, after many, many months of being in Titus 1. That's what's next, Titus 2. And um, we get into this great, great chapter that I'm very excited about. Titus chapter 2. And if you're able to stand with me, beloved, go ahead and stand for the reading of Titus chapter 2. If you're not able to physically stand, it's okay. You can follow along as you sit. But if you're able to stand, please do so. And make sure that you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are copies of God's Word in front of you. Or you can turn on God's Word, right? Always turn on the Scriptures in your device. Or share with somebody next to you. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Word of the living God. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they might encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world or age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. Title of this morning's message is Sound Doctrine Leads to Sound Living. Sound Doctrine Leads to Sound Living. And I'm very excited, as I said, to get into this great chapter. But this is going to be a kind of an over general overview as we look to the specific contents of, of Titus chapter 2. And um, I know that we're going to, it's going to be a life-changing study for us, beloved, as a church. I'm confident of that uh, because of the grace of God as he works in our hearts and lives to apply these truths to our, our lives. 
Well, over the years, I've had um, the privilege of attending a number of really helpful national conferences, uh, Christian conferences. Um, and at the top of the list of conferences that the Lord has allowed me uh, to attend was uh, the T4G conference a couple of years ago. Uh, T4G stands for Together for the Gospel. And um, recently, uh, T4G came out with their statement concerning their upcoming conference. It's a every other year conference. So they're holding this in the spring of next year. And this is the statement uh, just introducing their upcoming conference for next year. Quote, Our fallen world has never been friendly to God's way and God's will. This ever-present truth has become even clearer in recent years. The academy calls Christian morality bigoted. The courts choose the sexual revolution over religious liberty. Hollywood alters a nation's moral sympathies from one season to the next. And racial animosity continues to rear its ugly head. How should we respond? The culture may call churches to conform, but God calls us to be set apart, sanctified, holy as he is holy, distinct from the world, end quote. I love that last part, which asks the question that in the light of all of these difficulties and the uh, culture pushing back on the truth of the word of God, how shall we respond? And while the culture calls churches to conform, God calls us continually in his word that ever speaks to be set apart, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be distinct from the world if we are to engage the world with the gospel. I love that. Because the danger, beloved, for so many of us Christians and Christian churches is that we should fear what is going on around us and cower away with our tail between our legs, so to speak, and not stand firm by what the Bible says. That is, the, that is what many Christians are already doing and what some evangelical churches are doing as well, cowering away from making a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and what His Word reveals as truth. And the danger for us as well is, is to not trust God and fear uh, God, but fear man. Because we are living in dangerous times, so we are cowering away, and we're seeing Christians do that. And yet what the Word of God calls us to, beloved, is that even though we live in dangerous times, we are not called to be shaped uh, in what we believe by the culture and the society around us by what the Word of God says. The Word of God is to be what shapes what we believe about such issues as, as the importance of human life, about marriage and, and family life, about work and, and about church life and how church is to be done. You see, as Christians, we are not to be shaped by the, by the definitions that are flying around, uh, around us here in our world, but we are to be engaging the culture with the truth of the Word of God and the gospel of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to. It is also helpful for us to remember this and comforting for us to remember that we're not the first to experience the type of opposition that we're seeing right now and we won't be the last. Paul, writing to Titus in the first century in the, the book of Titus, understood the danger of Titus and the churches on the island of Crete that they were under to adopt the world's thinking around them and to allow the culture around them to shape their perspective. Crete was a wicked and corrupt society, even worse in, in many ways in our, than, than our present uh, society today. And not only was the society itself corrupt and wicked, but as we've, we've seen the last couple of messages, there was also the infiltration of false teachers 
who were promoting a sort of legalistic, man-made teaching which undermined the gospel of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ alone and which wasn't leading to holiness in the lives of people, especially in the lives of false teachers. In fact, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul describes the false teachers. And he says, verse 10, there are many rebellious men. And notice how he describes his character. They are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They were influencing these people with corrupt uh, doctrine, and therefore it wasn't leading to holiness in their own lives or in the lives of the people. Chapter 1, verse 16, notice there. They profess to know God, But by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They profess to know God, to perhaps know things about him, but they denied him with with their very conduct and the way that they lived. Whatever they were teaching, and we know part of what they were teaching, wasn't promoting holiness in their own lives or in the lives of those who sat under them. And Paul tells Titus, on the other hand, Titus, you need to instruct the people to live godly in an ungodly society. To live holy lives. Why does he do that? Because Paul wants those churches to have an impact on the island of Crete. To display the gospel. And he knows, as he writes to Titus, that the church will never impact the society around her by becoming like the world. By adopting the world's mentality. Rather, the church will have a powerful impact upon the world by setting itself apart from the world's thinking, corrupt thinking, and engaging her with the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Titus chapter 2, beloved, listen, is a charge to God's church to be established in holy character and conduct that the transforming power of the gospel may be heard and seen by the world around us. The church must see a difference in this. The world must see a difference in the church. The church is really on this earth a lighthouse of the truth or for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a church that I know well in the Caribbean. And the first time that we drove to visit this particular church, I was floored by its location and its surroundings. Um, It's surrounded by um, a, a river that runs in the lower valley that basically they've found that over the years as people have uh, drank from the water of this river, they have, they have, it has led to deformities. Not only that, but there's a lot of, of corruption and, and, and there are a lot of poverty-stricken people in that particular area. There is a lot of drug activity and violence and gang activity. This is a difficult environment for this church to be, and yet this church is, is at the top of the hill. Not only figuratively speaking or spiritually speaking, if you will, but actually literally speaking. It stands at the top of a hill with this valley that's behind it where they do outreach continually. They preach the Word of God. They teach the Word of God. They equip their people to reach out and to be conformed into the image of Christ and their equipping of one another. They do programs in the church to reach out to those who are saved, um, who are looking to be uh, uh, delivered from drug addiction or alcoholism. 
And it strikes me every time that I've gone back to that church and I've talked to the pastors, every shepherd's conference who are a part of that particular church, that church is a lighthouse. The light, a lighthouse for the truth in this corrupt community. And beloved, that could be said and should be said about every church. Calvary Bible Church, though in a different context here in Burbank, in a filthy rich community, mind you, we are to be a lighthouse and are called to reach people for Christ here where we are at. We are a lighthouse to impact the society around us. And if we are going to be a lighthouse, then we must be established and be fleshing out godly character and conduct that the world around us may see a difference in us. What is it that makes you guys different? Obviously, you teach and you preach the truth, but boy, you live it. You love God and you love one another and you love people around you with the gospel. We want to see people want to make Jesus shine so, so bright that people want to know about Jesus, you see. That happens through our godly character and conduct, beloved, and the practice of the truth. So we're going to be looking specifically at Titus chapter 2 and the specific contents. But before that, there are, there are four foundations about the nature of godliness, the nature of godly conduct that we need to understand and put into practice, beloved. If the way that we are going to impact a lost world for Jesus Christ is by manifesting godly character and godly conduct, then there are some foundations about the nature of godliness as seen in the book of Titus, and in particular chapter 2, that you and I need to understand and put into practice before we look at the specifics of chapter 2. Okay, The first foundation that we learn in Titus chapter 2 is this. Godliness flows from sound doctrine. Godliness flows from sound doctrine. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 1 that Paul commands Titus. He says, But, in contrast to the false teachers, But as for you, Titus, as for you, speak or teach is the idea there. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That word fitting there means proper or suitable or, or fitting. In other words, there is a, a, there is a character and conduct that these false teachers were promoting via their own teaching. And Paul tells Titus, in contrast to that, Titus, you need to be teaching and preaching those things that promote godly conduct. Behavior that is appropriate for those who love and follow Jesus. Conduct that is fitting with biblical Christianity. There's the muddying of the waters today, isn't there? Where now Christians don't even look different than the world. And many people who profess to know Jesus think, well, as, if we look more and more like the world, and we can, then they will see that we identified with them, and then we can reach them for Jesus. No! No! There is a Christian way to live in application of the truth, isn't there? And it should flesh out in love for the Lord and love for one another so that the world around us sees a difference in us, beloved. That there's an authentic, profound, deep love for God and love for one another in the truth. That's what the world around us needs to see. But if this godly conduct or this Christian way that we are to live is to be fleshed out, then it happens first and foremost, beloved, as our thinking is shaped by the Word of God, not by the world around us. And so Titus is instructed here in chapter 2, verse 1, that he must teach them how to live. Because sound doctrine leads to sound living. In other words, healthy teaching leads, when it's applied, to healthy living. 
to a healthy lifestyle, conduct that honors the Lord. This is a principle, sound doctrine leading to sound living, that is taught throughout the, this book, and especially in chapters 1 and 2. Notice, sound doctrine is so prominent here in Titus. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. The elder is to be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in what? Sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The elders, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers of the church must be those men who fast, hold fast, uh, grab a hold of the word of God in the face of opposition so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. They must be able to protect the sound doctrine of the church. Why? Because if they don't and corrupt doctrine infiltrates the church, then it won't lead to godliness in the lives of God's people. So elders must protect the doctrine of the church. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Likewise, urge young men to be sensible in all things. Chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself, Titus, to be an example of good deeds. Notice, with purity or uh, uncorruptness in doctrine. Titus is to be a man who is known for teaching the unadulterated truth, sound doctrine. Why? Because sound doctrine leads to sound living. If Titus doesn't protect the doctrine in his teaching and via his example, then the people will not grow and they won't promote holiness in their lives as well. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. Bond slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, Verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Godly conduct in bond slaves makes the gospel attractive, adorns the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The point is, beloved, that here in Titus, doctrine, teaching is important because it will, when applied, produce godliness in the lives of God's people. In fact, you might summarize the the, the first two chapters of Titus by saying this. Chapter 1 reveals the kind of men necessary to teach and defend sound doctrine, while chapter 2, the kinds of things that are to be taught in accord with sound doctrine. How the people of God are to be living in the light of applying the Word of God to their lives. This is what godly conduct looks like, flowing from sound doctrine. This is why, beloved, in the church... The way that we help you stand firm and combat against a wicked society is not by compromising the truth, not by downplaying the truth, not by watering down the truth. We teach and we preach the unadulterated word of God because as you are renewed in your thinking, godly conduct will flow from a renewed mind that applies the word of God to one's life. And you must apply it. It must not just be intellectual information that you are obtaining every week, but in prayer and in meditation and reflecting on the Word of God taught and preached in whatever context, you need to be a person who is prayerfully considering how you might have your mind renewed by the Word of God. What are those thoughts and actions and conduct and priorities that are to change in your life in light of sound doctrine? Because sound doctrine must lead to sound living. How are you doing this morning with regards to your daily intake, regular intake of the Word of God? Because, beloved, it's, it's to the extent that you are delighting and devoting yourself to the Word of God, meditating and reflecting upon the Word of God, saturating your mind with the Word of God, it will or will not flow forth in your conduct and in your attitudes and your priorities, you see. 
This is a point that Psalm, if you will turn there with me, Psalm 1 makes. Psalm 1 is really the psalm that lays the foundation for the rest of the Psalter. And in Psalm 1, there are two paths that are really laid out for us. The path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. And with which path you are on depends on your response to the Word of God. And how valuable and treasured the Word of God is to your life. Look at Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But, verse 2, his delight, or her delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And what will be the result of somebody who is delighting and and devoted to the law of the Lord? Verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. There's the fruit of of the word of God being delighted in in your life, and a godly conduct. The wicked, verse 4, are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Mark it, beloved. You are either on the righteous path or you're on the wicked path. And whether you are on whichever path you are on is dependent upon your response and your delighting in the word of God or not. And whether you are appropriating the truth of the word of God to your life. Go back with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, we have the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And God speaks to Joshua now that he is the new leader of the nation of Israel. And notice, there are two things that God wants Joshua to know. One is that God is going to be with Joshua just like he was with Moses. But there's something else that God wants Joshua to not forget about. Verse 6 of Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And where is he going to derive his strength and his courage from? Notice, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Joshua is to derive his direction and his guidance as he leads the people of God similar to Moses from the very law of the Lord, from the word of God. He is to delight in the word. He is to meditate upon it. Look at verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed, for I, the Lord your God, is with you wherever you go. I will be with you, Joshua, as I was with Moses, and my word must be your guide. You must delight yourself in my word. Joshua and the nation, beloved was to continue to be shaped by God's word, not the thinking of the world around them. And we see later on in the history of the nation of Israel, what happened to the nation when they started adopting the world's thinking around them and wanting to live like the world and maybe thinking that they could have an impact with the world by just becoming like the world. No. God says, follow my word. Don't turn away from it to the right or to the left. Obey my word. Delight in my word. 
And that is a message to us too, beloved, as well. Are you a person who is allowing your life to be, to be um, influenced by the Scriptures? Let me ask you this. Is the Word of God shaping your worldview and your outlook on what's going on in the world around us? Speaking of our culture, what is shaping your worldview? Is it television? Is it the news? Is it online surveys that more and more Christians are taking now online from so-called experts that are going to tell you what kind of personality that you have? Whether you're a people person or you're not a people person? Since when do we listen to the experts to tell us whether we should be obeying God's word because maybe we're not wired in a certain way according to their own standards? What is influencing your worldview? Is it the false teachers on national television? The so-called psychology experts? Is it social media? Is it governing authorities? Is it your upbringing or your life experiences? Well, I didn't grow up this way. And what I've learned over the years is this. I know the word says this, but really at the end of the day, it's my experience that really dictates how I live my life. Is sound doctrine shaping your worldview or is it the world around us and the philosophical, ideological fortresses of the world around us? Which one is it, beloved? Because there's spiritual warfare going on, I can tell you right now, and it is fought on the deeper level of ideas and worldviews and philosophies of man or God's Word. One or the other. Who's shaping your worldview? See, lots of people are driven by how they feel or what's acceptable in our society or how you grew up and, or so forth and so forth. Not by the Word of God. And I can assure you that adopting worldly thinking won't produce godliness or holiness in your life. You see, for Christians, it is the the degree to which you saturate your mind with the Word of God, beloved, and you humbly respond to God's Word in loving obedience. To that degree, it will produce godliness in your life. You must submit yourself in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God to the Word of God. It isn't even sufficient to sit in and listen to message after message after message if you're not going to apply the Word of God to your life. For Christians, the Word shapes our worldview, beloved. It guides our thinking. It informs our thinking on issues such as the sanctity of human life, on gender identity, on marriage and family, on the role of the government and Christians' responsibility to the government, even if it's corrupt, on racial tensions. If you are a Christian, your worldview on these issues should be shaped by what the Bible says, not by what the world says. Sound doctrine leads to sound living, to sound thinking. So godliness, first and foremost, flows from sound doctrine, beloved. From sound doctrine. Secondly, the second foundation we learn in Titus chapter 2 is this. Godliness is stimulated by godly relationships. Hear me. Godliness is stimulated by godly relationships. I want you to take note of something in chapter 2. That there are instructions given to various groups, ready for this, of people. People who make up the church, who would have made up the church then and make up the church today. Notice chapter 2, verse 2, older men are addressed there. People. Chapter 2, verse 3, older women. People are addressed there. Notice chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, younger women are addressed. Those are people. 
Notice chapter 2, verse 6. Younger men are addressed. Also Titus. Those are people. Bond slaves are addressed in chapter 2, verse 9. What are those? What are those? They are people, right? I want you to take note of this, beloved. We have nothing here in chapter 2 of Titus about programs and methodologies and events and property or structures and so forth and so forth. Not because those things are evil in themselves or unnecessary or unhelpful, but because those things in themselves are not the main point. They're not the main point. Ministry is people. People. That's what we have in Titus chapter 2. We have people who are instructed to cultivate a godly character and godly conduct so that they might stimulate others by way of example that they might become more like Jesus, that God would be glorified and the gospel will be put on display on earth. People impacting people so that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus. This is huge, huge for us. Please hear me. Because many of us have, have, have missed the point of ministry. We make ministry about the plethora of peripheral matters. We make structures and programs and events and other things the main thing. Beloved, those are merely tools to do what? To grow people so that people would become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And if those secondary matters go away or change or are restructured, then listen to me. Ministry doesn't end because people are still here and people need to hear the gospel and be edified so that they would become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. Ministry is about people. This will revolutionize your life and will be so freeing. Because you know what? You'll realize that if you walk out of this service right now and invite another person or another family out to lunch and just hang out and speak the truth to one another in love, you're doing ministry. You're doing ministry. The other day we went out to a Dodger game as, as men and I was so encouraged. Yeah, we're there with the Dodgers and they're not doing very well. You know, I don't even want to go off on that one right now because I know I affirmed them in the past and I'm not going to do that, but uh, so disappointed right now. Anyway, the Dodger game wasn't even the point, you understand. We're sitting there and we're able to interact with one another as brothers and speak the truth to one another in love, find out what's going on in life, right? Catch up. Is that not ministry? That's ministry too. That's ministry too. Life on life relationships, beloved. If we're going to learn something about Titus 2, is that ministry consists about real human relationships and lives touching one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, beloved. And that is ministry. That is ministry. See, for many of us, Ministry consists of participating in programs and structures and doing things the way that they have always been done. And you know what happens? We become paralyzed when there's changes or there's, there's uh, changes to those structures, those secondary matters. And we think that ministry is over as we know it. Why is that? Why is that? Because we've gotten so busy, appearing busy, that we've avoided real human relationships, beloved. But hear me, when things change as far as programs or structures or, 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 or events or whatever, ministry doesn't end because people are still around, aren't they? We still are encouraged and exhorted to cultivate human relationships for the purpose of becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. You need to catch this point. 
and embrace it and apply it from Titus chapter 2? Because many of you run around very busy doing a lot of stuff, many good things, many things not very good, juggling 10, 15, 20 different things, and then you become disillusioned and discouraged because you realize at some point in time in ministry, you realize that though you're doing a lot, you have no human relationships or growing in Jesus very much. And I feel for you. I really do as your pastor. Because you've, to some extent or another, you missed the point of why you're involved in serving in the first place. Structures and programs and all of these things are a tool, A, to serve people so that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Two, to foster mutually edifying relationships that lead to people becoming like Jesus. If those two objectives aren't being accomplished by our structures and programs and events and all of the other plethora of things that we do to get busy, then you know what? Those things could look very different and they can come and go. But we love our traditions. We love our programs. We love our structures. We love our methods, the way that we do things and the way that we've always done things, even if they are not leading to people becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus. Listen to me. We are very short-sighted and blinded by what we're used to, beloved, and we miss the big picture and the point of ministry that it's people growing to be like Jesus at the end of the day. And the secondary matters can look different. Amen? Some of us need to reassess our definition of what we think ministry is very seriously. Because if structural changes take place in the church and you feel now... Uh, paralyzed or incapacitated, then you have lost sight of what Christian ministry is all about. Are you telling me that there aren't other people in the church that you can minister to now? This goes for any changes, beloved. For any changes in the church. According to Titus chapter 2, what we learn is that ministry is about people stimulating one another to love and good deeds. That's what it comes down to. You know, I've been in places all over the world, and I know my brother Tim Carnes, who was here first service, he can tell you this, the same thing. Many of these contexts that we visit or have visited, they don't have structures. They don't have a lot of programs. They might have some. They don't have events galore. They don't have all of the fluff that, that Christians in America have to have to be happy. They don't have a lot of those things. You know what they have? They have godly relationships and they invest into one another so that they're growing in their love for the Lord and growing in their love for one another. And that glorifies Christ. That glorifies Christ. They don't have all the fluff that we do. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to have these things. What I'm saying is is that we can become so fixated upon those things that our happiness and our content depends upon the presence or absence of those things. Say, well, what if we have them? Then you know what we do? We leverage those programs and those structures and so forth and so forth for kingdom growth in the lives of people. We make sure that they're effective, that they're utilized to help people grow in conformity to Jesus. Otherwise, they can go. They can. Because they're merely tools, beloved. Tools. That's what they are. How we complicate ministry, don't we? How we complicate ministry. Ministry is people. Say, so, well, Pastor, I'm not a I'm not a people person. You gotta understand, I took one of those surveys online and social media and it told me this is legit, by the way. 
This is happening with a lot of Christians who are taking these, these, these uh, surveys on social media, trying to determine what kind of personality they have, and they base their life on that, whether they will obey God's word or they won't even. I'm not a people person according to that survey. Listen to me. When has God given us a right to obey or disobey his word based upon how we think we're wired? I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere. Jesus was the ultimate people person, wasn't he? He ministered to people. And don't use the excuse that you just simply don't have time. You just don't make time. That's really the issue. Because our Lord was the busiest man who ever walked on the face of this planet. And he always had time for people, didn't he? To invest himself into people. To help people understand his person. And the fact that by believing in him they might have life. He was the busiest person that ever walked on this planet. And yet he had time for people to invest himself into others. This is what Titus is all about, beloved. Titus chapter 2. Lives impacting lives. Bleeding and, and, and sweating together, so to speak. As they discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. And stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what Titus 2 is all about. And we're going to see that Titus 2 is all about. Life on life discipleship. You know what Titus 2 tells me? That you and I need one another. That's what Titus 2 tells me. That none of us can, can, can live lives isolated from other people, other believers. Men, it doesn't matter how strong physically you may be. It doesn't matter how strong of a temper you may have. You are a weak man and you need other men in your life. Older men, you need to be investing yourself into younger men in the church. That's what Titus 2 is all about. You have a responsibility to obey or disobey, or you're accountable to obey or disobey, the command to invest yourself into other men as you cultivate godly character and conduct. Ladies, you are not self-sufficient. You need other women in your life. Older women, you need to be investing yourself into younger women. And might I say this, younger women, you need to stop being proud and think that you have it all together in the way that you raised your kids and your family already and seek out older women who may have made mistakes, but they have a lot to teach you about what it means to be a godly woman, a godly wife, and a godly mother, and a godly church lady. Younger men too. We need to be stop being so pompous and arrogant and proud young men including myself, to not seek out some of these older men who have had a lot of life experience and can teach us a lot about what it means to walk with Jesus over a long period of time. Amen? We need one another, beloved. Titus 2 sends that message that godliness is stimulated by godly relationships, life-on-life relationships. It is not optional. It simply isn't. Titus 2 relationships are not optional. You won't be able to grow into conformity to Jesus, to the glory of God, to the extent that God wants in your life. If you do not seek these relationships out, you understand. Don't take this as a Kempis Hernandez philosophy. Don't take this as the elders of Calvary Bible Church believe this. This is what Calvary Bible Church believes. This is the Word of God. This is what God calls us to in His Word. Life-on-life relationships that stimulate growth and godliness and holiness. Amen? That's what that's all, this is all about, beloved. Godliness flows from sound doctrine, is stimulated by life-on-life relationships, godly relationships. Thirdly, third foundation that we learn from Titus 2 is this. Godliness is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. 
We don't pursue godly character and godly conduct because it earns us a good reputation with other people. And we want to be good little Christians who look like everybody else around us or for selfish ambition. We don't pursue godly conduct because it somehow keeps us in favor with God as if our conduct can somehow add more to God's saving, finished work in Jesus Christ. It doesn't. It is all for the glory of God, isn't it? It's all for God's glory. What we learn in Titus chapter 2 is that our godly conduct, beloved, exalts God, lifts up His name, displays His gospel. Look at chapter 2. And verse 4, older women are to be teaching younger women so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that you young women may look really, really good with other young women. Is that what it says? No. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. God is glorified when younger women in application of the investment of older women in their lives apply themselves to live godly lives here in the society. God is glorified when his word is honored and obeyed. Look at chapter 2 and verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men, Titus, to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And here's the purpose. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. God is glorified, beloved, when his opponents are shut down and silenced by the way that we live our lives godly in this life. Look at chapter 2 and verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Here it is. So that, purpose clause, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. As we conduct ourselves in a godly way, and here in particular bond slaves, God is glorified and His gospel is made much of as they submit themselves in this manner. God should be glorified, beloved. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12 puts it this way. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, by which he means by Gentiles unbelievers. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, that them mean the good deeds, as they observe your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. Why do we live excellently, beloved, in society? It's not for selfish ambition. It's so that God may be glorified. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That people may see the way that we live and glorify our heavenly Father. Formerly, when we were without Christ, we were living for ourselves, weren't we? It was all about exalting self. A great idol of self was what we worshipped over there, right? And we obeyed everything that we wanted to do, everything that our desires and our attitudes dictated. Oh, great idol of self. But post Jesus coming into our lives and rescuing us from the domain of darkness, we are to be living, beloved, now for His glory and His exaltation, right? Because He's our great rescuer, our great Savior, We do this out of love and gratitude for our Savior, you see, for His glory. I don't know if you've seen some of the images of people being rescued in Houston. 
But the other day, one image in particular struck me of a, of a rescuer uh, had in his arms a, a, um, a, a young boy rescuing him out of these, out of these waters, dangerous waters. And, this, and what struck me about the picture itself was this boy looking up to the face of this rescuer with just a, such a sense of appreciation and admiration for, the, for the, the, guy, the fact that this guy had rescued him and given his own life, sacrificed his own life to rescue this young man. I thought to myself, wow, wow, what sacrifice. And this young boy, mark it, he's going to live the rest of his life expressing appreciation, never forgetting what this person did for him and having laid down his life for him and sacrificed his own life. And I thought to myself, is that me? Is that me with my Savior, with my Jesus? Do I live for his glory or do I live for myself? Some of you like to think that even now as Christians, you're living life for God's glory. But you look at your time, you look at your resources, you look at the way that you invest yourself in the things of this world, and it's pretty clear that you're not living for the glory of God. You're living for yourself. You're living for yourself. We ought to be living to manifest the glory and the majesty of God, beloved, in light of his great rescuing of us of our sin. Godliness flows from sound doctrine, stimulated by life-on-life relationships or godly relationships. For God's glory and fourth foundation that we see in Titus chapter 2 is this. Godliness is fueled by the grace of God. Godliness is fueled by God's grace. On the heels of all of the instructions given to these various groups, to older men and older women and younger men and younger women and to bond slaves... In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul reminds Titus of the basis for all of those instructions. And you might even say the motivation for those instructions. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Why should older men and older women and younger men and younger women and bond slaves be conducting themselves in a godly way in society? Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. What has it done? Bringing salvation to all men instructing us, verse 12, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Jesus, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Beloved, the basis for all of those instructions given to us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 of Titus is the grace of God. Because without the grace of God, we can do nothing, right? We can do nothing without the grace of Christ. Saving, sanctifying, sustaining grace, leading us all the way to the end of the the, the, uh, brutal uh, journey of the Christian life here on this earth in a broken and perverse generation. Grace will lead us home, as the song says. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And listen to this. And grace will lead me home. A believer, a Christian understands this. That it's all about grace from beginning to end, right? 
All about grace. So if you're going to live out the godly conduct instructed here in Titus chapter 2, it must be fueled by the grace of God. Oh, I suppose, as many of us try to, that we may try to live the Christian life and walk in a godly way by sheer willpower. I'm going to do this by my own moral bootstraps. I can do this thing, especially for us guys, right? I can fix these problems that I have in my life. You know what? That is short-sighted, isn't it? That is short-sighted. And you know what's going to happen if it hasn't already? You're going to lose heart because you are not daily being fueled and empowered by the grace of God as you seek Him in His Word and in prayer daily, preaching the gospel to yourself. You're going to run out of fuel like a runner who is dehydrated in this long marathon without water. That's going to be you in the Christian life. Grace fuels your godliness, you understand. You need the Lord daily. I suppose you can try to live godly from mere duty. Hey, because I have to. Maybe you have the military mentality. You just do it. You just submit. You just do it, period. You know what happens in those instances? You shortchange yourself. And I don't know about you, but I feel robbed of the blessings that come by being dependent upon the Lord and His grace. When I obey simply because I have to and not out of love and gratitude for the grace of God in my life, I lose sight of things like joy and and peace and delighting in the Lord that comes from relying upon the grace of God. You can do the things out of fear of men. Try to live godly. Out of fear of men, trying to please others around you, trying to measure up to a particular standard, externally speaking, of other people around you. But this too is forgetting that the reason why you needed the grace of God was not because you couldn't measure up to others, but because you couldn't measure up to the holiness and the majesty of God, right? We need God's grace at the very beginning when we are saved and all throughout our life, all the way to the end. And the issue is not measuring up to people's standard. It is being relying upon the Lord so that we may please Him, right? You can do things to stay in good favor with God. Guilt-tripping yourself constantly, hitting yourself on the head. Well, I need to do better. I need to do better or God will be mad at me. You know what this does? This cheapens the grace of God. And it compromises the beautiful relationship that you have with God. Because all of a sudden you become performance-based in your relationship with the Lord. But what does grace teach us? That from beginning to end, beloved, we cannot earn favor with God. And God cannot love us any less or any more than He already does love us in Jesus Christ. He loves us in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. His favor is upon us. God is for us in Jesus Christ. When we become performance-based, rather than allow grace to fuel our godly living, beloved, we forget about the beautiful doctrine of adoption. That now our Heavenly Father has called us and adopted us into His family. He accepts us. He loves us. And His love is not based upon our performance, but based upon His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it's based upon. Grace fuels holiness and godly conduct. This is why as an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have not been forgiven of your sins, you have not been reconciled to your Maker, you need to understand grace. You need to understand grace. You don't fix yourself before you come to the Lord. You come to the Lord so that He fixes you. Right? 
You don't fix yourself and reform yourself so that, he, so that you, you, can, you can be acceptable in God's sight. You come to him bankrupt knowing that you have nothing to offer and there's no way that you can ever measure up to God's perfect, holy standard and majesty. What is grace? It's God's unmerited, unearned favor and kindness shown to those who deserve only hell. And that comes at the expense of God's beloved son who lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death for you and I as sinners, right? Only based upon his sacrifice can you be forgiven. You need to understand what grace means. Grace is not something that you can earn. You can't earn it. Grace is given to you in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So listen to me. If you're an unbeliever, as we walk through Titus chapter 2, you need to understand this. This is not a chapter on reforming yourself so that God will accept you. This is not a chapter on how to live a better life. This is not a chapter on adopting some good moral principles so that God accepts you and other people around accept you as well. This is a chapter for those who are saved by the grace of God and the life which grace produces from the inside out in someone who has put their faith in Jesus and is being continually transformed from the inside out. Amen? That's what this chapter is all about. Grace fuels godly conduct. And that begins when you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ genuinely from the heart, knowing that only Jesus alone can save you and only in Jesus alone can you find forgiveness and reconciliation with your Maker. Only, only in Christ. And for us as believers, beloved, may we never ever forget what the song says. This grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Godliness is fueled by God's grace. Listen, Titus 2 is a great reminder that we must be holy people if we are going to be putting the gospel on display on this earth. And the jury is out, beloved. Will you as an individual, as a Christian, or will we as a church today conform to the world around us? Or will we be holy so that we are positioned to share the gospel and the transforming power of that gospel for people who desperately need to hear the hope of Jesus? That there's deliverance from the, from the penalty and the power of sin and dominion over people's lives. It's found in Jesus alone. But people won't see that. And won't even ask the question if there's no difference in you or in them or you from them in the way that you live your life as a believer. That we must never compromise God's word to reach people. The most powerful way to reach our community and our world for Christ, beloved, is by not becoming like the world, but showing the world the transforming power of the gospel in both word and deed. Amen? In this way, we put the gospel on display as people and as a church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, you are a great God. A great God who has accomplished a great saving work in our hearts and lives as individuals and as a community of faith. Father, help us in application of your word as we look in the contents of Titus chapter 2 to be a people who conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us in Jesus Christ. Father, not so that we would, we should, we would escape the world around us, but so that, we, so that we would engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would see a difference in our lives, that we would display the gospel, Lord, in the way that we live, in the way that we love you and love people, 
so that, Father, they may come to us and ask, what is it that makes you different than me? And, Father, that we might be able to say nothing except that I have Jesus and you need Jesus as well. Father, help us to be those kinds of people and that type of church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.